Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Okay, so in college, I've got no money, but I've got a talking dog, right? (laughs) Well, he can't talk, but he understands regular English. Go upstairs, get your ball, wait for me on the porch. Done. Smarter than my roommates for sure. But still, one day the man sticks a citation on my door for having the dog in the front yard off leash. I look at the ticket. Look at my dog. What's this, dog? I wave the ticket in front of him. Dog shakes his head like, sorry, bruh. Dude was crazy. And that's how it goes, right? And then one day, I come home a little early. It's real food Friday. My turn to make pizza for my housemates. I got the tomatoes, the yeast, and everything. One of the fellas says, hey, hey, some officer stopped by looking for you. Really? He hands me the guy's card. And there's a little police satellite office half a block from me. I walk down to see if I can be of any assistance. Um, my name's Glenn. Somebody wanted to speak with me? One officer looks at the other officer. You live up the street, right? Uh-huh. You the guy with the dog? Yep. The officer slams my head against the counter. Get off me! What you doing? You got a warrant. Canine off leash. Jail time, son. Dog ticket? Jail? Get off me. I paid that months ago. He pushes my head against the counter, gets right up against my ear. Are you resisting arrest? Please tell me you're resisting arrest. I don't say anything. Officer Crazy yanks my hands behind my back, locks two pairs of handcuffs on my arms. A squad car pulls up and he shoves me in the back seat. Take him downtown. Jail. Ask the driving officer, uh, sir, I go to school here. Could you please not drive through the middle of university with me in the back like this? In answer, he beeps the horn so people look up at the car as he drives slowly through the middle of campus. I try to duck my head down, but I can't because of the handcuffs. We arrive at the Ann Arbor jail. He pulls me into receiving office, makes me take off my shoelaces, then slams me into a cell. It's Friday afternoon. I sit there thinking, I was just about to make pizza. I can't be locked up, I can't be locked up, but there I sit, locked up. Minutes, hours, the attending officer 
saunters towards my cell, inspecting. This cell's too spacious and luxurious. Gonna have to downgrade your accommodations. <sighs> hey, I'm not supposed to be here. I need to see a judge. I need to get this reviewed. Well, it's Friday. Judge won't be until Monday morning. I suggest you lay back and settle in. Monday? Well, you could post bail in the next six minutes. Of course, we don't accept credit cards. I'll need $100 in cash. And he smiles gray teeth. I don't even have my wallet. Didn't imagine I'd need it. Monday afternoon, I'm stuck here till Monday afternoon. I shove my hands in my pocket for the wallet that I know sits on my bedroom dresser. And I feel something. My hand comes out holding a couple pieces of paper. I look down. Two crisp $50 bills. I stare. When did I get $100? Who carries $50 bills in their pocket? Where did it come from? I, I don't know. The officer looks disappointed. Wait right there. 45 minutes later, I'm walking home. Open the door. My roommates are like, dude, where's the pizza? I need a minute. I go up to my room. My dog follows me up and I'm shaking, angry. To calm down, I tell my dog what happened. And he looks at me like he hears me, like he understands me, you know. Then he puts his head in my lap as if to say, see, I told you, them fools are crazy. Today, on Snap Judgment, from WNYC, High Crimes and Misdemeanors. Amazing stories from real people trying real hard to stay on the right side of the law. My name is Glenn Washington. Big shout out to the Ingham Police Department because you're listening. Listen, listen, listening to Snap Judgment. Now, for our first story on the High Crimes and Misdemeanor Show. Marina Namah grew up in Tehran and Iran during the 1970s when the Shah ruled the country with an iron fist. The excesses of the Shah were about to catch up with them, but young Marina's life might sound familiar. This story does contain elements where sensitive listeners and those with children should be advised. Snap Judgment. I was just your average teenager wearing makeup and wearing high heel shoes and dancing and being absolutely fascinated by boys. We would take our boomboxes to the beach. The girls would be wearing their little bikinis. I had a green one with white polka dots. And we would be just partying until the wee hours of the morning, boys and girls together. We would be dancing to the tunes of the Bee Gees. 
Back then in Tehran, Marina lived a pretty good life. On Saturdays, she partied with her boyfriend. On Sundays, she prayed at mass. But things were about to change with the Iranian Revolution. In 1979, the Shah of Iran was overthrown, and Ayatollah Khomeini took power. First, when the revolution succeeded, for a while, there was actually more freedom. You could do whatever. And then our teachers began to disappear. Suddenly, you would go to class. There would be this, like, young girl, maybe 18, who had the complete Islamic hijab, and she would spend the whole class time with government and religious propaganda telling us that wearing revealing clothing was satanic, going out with boys was absolutely illegal, dancing illegal. Western literature became illegal as well. I mean, now you couldn't buy Jane Austen anymore. We were angry. You know, you tell a teenager that she cannot dance, she cannot swim, she cannot wear makeup, she cannot party. What's she going to do? So one day I went to school and we had calculus. So we sat down and she started again going on and on. I was so fed up. And I just suddenly, you know, I raised my hand. She said, yeah, what? I said, miss, can you please teach calculus? This is a calculus class. She looked at me and she said, well, if you don't like what I teach, leave. Everybody just turned around and stared right at me. And I could hardly breathe. And I thought, oh my gosh. I mean, I was a good student. I was not the kind of student to walk out. So I um, picked up my books and I walked out. And I turned around and the majority of my class followed me out into the hallway. We all looked at each other and we said, oh wow. What do we do now? And then we decided we should, we should just go to the yard and chill out there. Recess came and everybody were saying, are you guys on a strike? What? What? The, the strike? And that sounded really cool. So I said, yeah, guys, we are on strike. So then all the other kids, they said, okay, so we are on strike too. Marina led the school-wide strike. And as in strike... It was basically an all-day recess. They sat around outside, laughing and gossiping. But after three days, Marina and some friends were called into the principal's office. She was angry. She said, listen, if you don't go back to class right now, I will call the Revolutionary Guard and they will come and arrest you. Do you understand? And we all looked at each other and we said, OK, we're going to go back to class. So a few months after the strike, I was home. It was 9, 10 o'clock at night. I was about to take a shower. I went into the bathroom and I turned on the water. And that was when I heard the doorbell. Then my mother called my name. I opened the bathroom door and there were two really big guns um, three inches from my face. My mom and dad, they were standing behind the guards and they were crying. And I just froze, robotic. And I, I just, I guess, I entered a state of shock. I just didn't feel anything. 
the guards, they said, well, you, where is your chador? Chador is a form of Islamic hijab. And I told them I do not have one because I'm a Christian. They said, fine, you know, whatever, just cover your head and let's go. Marina grabbed her rosary and wrapped a beige shawl over her head. She was being arrested for the student strike. Then the Revolutionary Guards pushed her into a black car before she had the chance to say goodbye. The car zigzagged north towards the mountains until finally they arrived at the notorious Evan Prison. When we drove up to it, it was just this huge, monstrous wall uh, that had barbed wire on top and a lot of guards and lookout towers. Everybody knew that if you ended up there, you would be severely tortured. You would either stay there for years or you, you would be executed. The guards threw Marina into a hallway packed with other prisoners. The girl sitting next to me began to cry. She said, we are all going to die. I turned to her. I just said to her, listen, um, we are not going to die. And it wasn't bravery. It was stupidity. That was when someone called Marina Moradi Bacht, get up and follow me. We were in a very small room. Uh, beginning of the interrogation, he said, my name is Brother Ali. And then, who are your friends? And how many protest rallies have you attended? Have you written articles against the government? It seemed to me from the beginning that he knows a lot about me. Then he said to me, you have to give us the names of all of your friends in school who took part in the strike. And I was very naive. I was very young. I said to him, I'm not going to give you any names. I mean, don't you already know? And he said, listen, you're going to regret it. Soon, another man entered the room. He introduced himself as Brother Hamed. He was Ali's partner. He said, so look around you and tell me what the names are. I said, I'm not talking. Brother Hamid, he started laughing because I, I have very small bones. And he put both of my wrists into one cuff. And as it clicked, I felt my right wrist crack. I started screaming. They both laughed. They took off my socks and my shoes. And Hamid, he waved a length of cable and he said, this is what's, what's going to land on you. They started lashing the soles of my feet. It was like my whole nervous system blew up and then it was magically put back. I would have given them the names of the world. It was just that they were not pausing. I started saying Hail Marys. Halfway through it, I forgot the words to it. The next thing Marina remembered was being blindfolded, then forced to walk outside with some other prisoners. They were ordered to walk and walk until Hamid's voice finally ordered them to stop. They took off our blindfolds and there were guards around us. And it took my eyes a little time to adjust, but when I looked around me, there were these wooden poles sticking out of the ground. There were two other young women and two young men. And we're all looking at each other like, what the hell is going on here? Then one of the girls started to run 
um and uh, i had never like that was just i mean it was surreal and i realized oh my god they are going to shoot us all then the other guards they tied us up to these poles that was when i heard I looked up to see a car. It is stopped very, very close to these poles. And Ali, the first interrogator who had spoken to me, he came out. He went to this other interrogator, Hamid, and gave him a piece of paper. Hamid took the paper, opened it, and read it. Then Ali came to me, untied me from the pole, and grabbed my arm and dragged me to his car. And he shoved me in. He got behind the wheel. And as we were driving away, I heard. I was terrified because I thought he's going to take me back to that building and he's going to beat me again. Marina passed out in the car. When she came to, she noticed that her wounds were neatly dressed and she found herself in a room with Ali, her torturer, and warm chicken soup. He put one spoonful, another spoonful in my mouth. It confused me that he was kind of being nice. Like I asked for water, he get me water. And then he yelled at me. He said, you idiot. I told you, didn't I tell you you have to talk? Didn't I tell you you have to give names? But I asked the Ayatollah to pardon you. Without saying why, Ali said he was somehow able to reduce her sentence from death to life in prison. Then Ali said something that she didn't expect. Which means, may God protect you. And then he said, I'm going away. Okay, I mean, you, you just tortured me. And now you're asking God to protect me? And he left, locked the door behind him and left. Later that night, Marina was escorted to cell block 246. 246 squeezed in 650 prisoners, all young women around Marina's age, some of whom she even recognized from school. This was going to be Marina's home for the rest of her life. The most terrifying things in 246 was when the loudspeaker came on reading names. This would crackle. Some people would be sent for interrogation, some people would be, um, be sent for execution. How you would find out is that if they asked someone from your cell to bring your belongings to the office, it meant that they were going to execute you. There would be a moment of, you know, shadow would cross your face. But people were stoic. Yeah. It wasn't that we had not broken under torture. Most of us had. But in a place where is absolute darkness, in order to survive, you need hope. So what do you do? You create it. You talk about what makes you human. So we talked about birthday parties, family reunions. And by doing this, we created hope. When they called your name, you couldn't afford to break down. You keep hope alive at any cost to you, but not your friends. I had a friend that I had met in prison, and um, 
they just called her one day. We were in our cell, and then she just got up, and she went to her belongings, and she shoved them into my arms, and she said, take these to my family. And she just put on her chador, and she just walked out. I just stood there with her belongings in my arms. I just stood there. I would think about mom, dad, you know, all those things that I had taken for granted. My mom wasn't very involved with me. And my dad, he wasn't a man uh, of many words. I, I, I even missed that. Half a year after Marina was arrested, she was called in for further interrogation. She was escorted into a small room, and there she saw her torturer, Brother Ali. I was kind of relieved that it was Ali and it wasn't Hamid, but at the same time, I was worried. He was limping, so I asked him, are you hurt? And he said, yeah, you know, I was at the war front and I was injured. Iran was in war with Iraq at the time. I said, oh, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. And he said, you know, yeah, thank you. But something you don't know is that I really left uh, Evin prison um, because I wanted to get away from you. Oh. He told me the first night I was arrested when I was sitting along the hallway and there was that girl next to me crying. And I told him not to cry, not to be afraid. Apparently, Ali had been standing there watching and listening. Ali also told Marina that when he learned that she was going to be shot, he immediately ran to the Ayatollah using his father's close connection and begged him to reduce Marina's sentence. He then rushed over to the firing squad, praying along the way that it wasn't too late. Then he said, I- I've had feelings for you and I wanted to stay away, but I couldn't. And then he said, I want you to become my wife. And I was, I thought I misheard. I repeated him. I said, you want me to become your wife? He said, yeah. Uh, I said, I can't do that. And he said, why? First of all, I don't love you. He laughed. He said, well, you know, marriage has nothing to do with love. That's kind of like a fairy tale thing. I saved your life after all. Ali insisted that if Marina converted and became his wife, he would fight to get her out of prison and give her the best life he could. He had already even talked to his parents. And even though it took a while, he got their blessing. But still, Marina refused. He said, well, you know what, if you don't marry me, I will arrest your parents and your boyfriend. When Snap Judgment returns, the stunning conclusion to Maria Namat's story right after the break. And The Daily Show's Hassan Minaj has a story you are not going to believe when the High Crimes and Misdemeanors episode continues. Stay Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the high crimes and misdemeanors episode. When last we left Marina Namad, she was in the notorious Evan prison in Tehran, and her captor had just presented a terrifying offer. He said, well, you know what? If you don't marry me, I will arrest your parents and your boyfriend. Ali threatened to throw her friends and family in prison, and that the next time she would see them would probably be on a torture bed or with the firing squad. He was dead serious, 
And I thought, if he arrests my parents, there wouldn't be a home. And what had kept me alive in prison was that I wanted to go home. I believed that I'll go home one day. So um, I said, okay. I had sold my soul to him. I had sold my whole identity to him. I hated him. I hated him. After Marina agreed to convert and marry her interrogator, Ali got permission from the prison to sort of take Marina home. She was required to spend some nights at 246, but other nights, she was forced to go with Ali to his family. I expected his mother to be the evil mother from Cinderella and torment me more. And then this little woman opened the door. She took me into her kitchen and all the food in her fridge landed on the table in front of me. And she said, I beg you, eat. She was kind. She was generous. She was nicer than my mother. Everybody in that family, Ali's dad, he always told Ali, have you asked Marina's opinion on that? My family, I mean, we were very dysfunctional. My mom and me, we never got along. And my mom and dad, they always fought and they always yelled at each other. And with this family, they were always respectful. As for Ali, Marina hated him like day one. But once she married him, she couldn't help notice that, well, if you didn't know what he did for a living, he'd be the kind of guy you'd want your daughter to meet. He surprised Marina with romantic dates and showered her with gifts. And also, Marina didn't know how to cook. But no worries, he did. And he did the dishes. It was bizarre. He had... The side to him that was extremely kind and gentle. He had this side that I don't think I have ever seen in any other man in my life. At the same time, this isn't, didn't mean that I was released or anything. Um, it was basically legalized rape. I told him that I'm literally your prisoner. But he always said about I love you. You see how good I am to you and you're going to come around. And it was true but I was his prisoner. I would argue with him. Like, torture was bad. Violence leads to violence. Killing leads to killing. And he always got angry when I said that. He believed that what he did was just. Yet still, Marina tried to be the best wife that Ali and his family wanted her to be. She learned to cook from his mother, and she became really close with his sister. But since she now spent part of her life sentence in a nice house with a nice family... She felt guilty. I was still a prisoner. I still spent time, sometimes in solitary confinement, simply because I didn't want to be with my cellmates. Suddenly, I looked healthier. Um, If I was in 246, I would have to explain to my friends about um, the marriage. And I felt (sighs) shame. I was sleeping with the enemy. So one day, his mom, just very casually one day, she told me, oh, you know that Ali was a political prisoner during the time of the Shah? What? He said, yeah, he was a prisoner in Evin, and he was tortured for three years. And I said, really? She said, yeah, I'm surprised he didn't tell you. He should have told you. You should know. Now she was telling me that the torturer had been the victim. It was also around this time that Marina noticed that Ali was conflicted about his work. He would come from work, and he would basically just sit in a corner, and he would just shake his head. 
I would say, how are you? And at the beginning, he would say, I don't want to talk about it. Just give me a few minutes. This was really where I noticed that Ali had begun to change. There was this young girl who was arrested, and then apparently this girl's sister had been killed during a protest rally, and she was just angry. Ali wanted Marina to convince this girl to just talk to her interrogator, Hamed. Just talk and say something for the sake of saving her life. Ali knew that this girl hadn't done anything wrong, but there was nothing he could do. So please, just talk. You know, like that was when I really discovered that it was troubling him. He never directly said it to me, but I could read it. Ali also started looking into the files of other women in 246. For those who were wrongfully imprisoned, he would ask his supervisors to reduce their sentences. But for doing this, Ali started making enemies with other guards in the prison. Then one day, he came to me and he said, I'm resigning. I said, what? And he said, well, I want to be a father, I want to be a husband, and I want to be a son, and I'm just done with this because nobody's listening to me anyhow in the prison, so I'm done with it. I was glad that he quit because that meant he was listening and that maybe in the long run, he and I as husband and wife maybe could actually even get along and have a long shot as something that was similar to happiness. A couple of weeks after he quit, we went to his parents' house to celebrate, to open this new chapter. We had a lovely dinner, and then after dinner, his parents say goodbye to us, or we kiss. Then we walked out on the street next to each other. It was dark, very dark, and there was the sound. And I just didn't have time to react to it because Ali pushed me. I hit the ground. Then Ali fell right on top of me. Suddenly, there was this... warm blood. It was just the blood. When he fell on me, I tried. I pushed him off. I wasn't quite sure who was hit. His face was white. He was, he was, he was. Suddenly, his parents, they showed up. Ambulance. And it, Ali started talking to his father. He said, Pedar John, Dad, make sure that you take her home to her family. And he died. And yeah, yeah, he died. That was when I passed out. Marina said Ali's assassination was an inside job. He had risked his life by questioning the harsh methods of the prison. I woke up in the hospital. Um, I felt devastated. I felt devastated. I don't think I ever loved him the way he loved me. 
but I couldn't even understand why I was so sad. Even though at the beginning I hated him, without him, I would just be utterly alone. I know that he had killed in Evin prison. He never talked about it, but I knew that he had. But he did resign at the end. At the end, he tried to pull himself aside. Marina was sent back to prison to serve her life sentence. But Ali's dad vowed to fulfill his son's dying wish. And finally, six months after Ali's death and two years after her arrest, on a cold rainy day in March, Marina was free. Ali's father, he came to the gates of the prison and... You know, like I can see his face right now. There was a relief, a smile. He said, here we are. I kept my word to my son. And you can go home now. He asked me, will you remember me well? And I told him that, yes, I will certainly remember you well. Uh, and then I asked him, so how will you remember me? And he said, As a brave daughter. We basically went our ways after that. I just walked down the street next to the walls of Evin, and I just kept going. I was just happy. I was just happy that... It was over, but at the same time, I realized that nothing was over. Evin was still there. People who had become closer to me than sisters, they were still there. All those people who had died, they could never be resurrected. But at the end of the day, the fact that Ali did begin to change gives me some hope. Maybe. Maybe. Thank you, Marina Namah, for sharing your incredible story with Snap. Marina finally reunited with her family and then escaped to Canada. She now lives in Toronto with her husband, Andre, and two sons. To learn more about her life in Iran, we'll have a link to her memoir, The Prisoner of Tehran, on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for Marina's story comes from Leon Morimoto, and that piece was produced by Davey Kim. Now when Snap returns, Hassan Minaj, yes, Hassan Minaj from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah has a family story like you've never heard before. And if you've missed even a moment of anything, not to fear Snap Nation, get the podcast at snapjudgment.org. The High Crimes and Misdemeanors episode returns in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from WNYC. The High Crimes and Misdemeanors episode. My name is Glenn Washington. 
you learn. I learned, even as a little person, that the way towards acceptance and love and ice cream is by following a certain set of rules. Rules laid out for every age, every situation, with the understanding that if you follow these rules, everything and everyone else is going to do their part. That way the world has order and justice, and more importantly, predictability. Right? Acquiescence leads to harmony. Transgression, on the other hand, produces disorder. But what if this little equation gets turned on its head? In fact, what if your world is not made out of rules, but is instead constructed of quicksand? Daily Show senior correspondent Hassan Minaj knows a little something about this. See, when he was just eight years old, living in suburbia, doing the right thing, he got exactly what he least expected. Snap judgment. It's my seventh birthday, and it's September 23rd. It's a Saturday, and my dad, he wakes me up super early in the morning, and he's like, Hassan, get up. And I was like, okay. He's like, get in the Camry. Get in the Camry, and in Davis in the morning, it's really foggy. Like, because we live Davis, Sacramento, Northern California, it's like in the fields. So it's really foggy, and we're in the Camry, and we're driving from Davis to Sacramento. And we get to this intersection, and I look to my left, and it's the one place that every kid dreams about. It's Toys R Us. I was like, oh my God. Dad saw the cutout on my wall. On my wall back home in my bedroom, I had this cutout from the Toys R Us kids catalog. And it was this cutout of this beautiful blue BMX bike that I wanted. 21 speed, 17.2 pounds. And I was like, oh, Like, Dad saw the Toys R Us Kids catalog cut out on my wall. He saw my little baby vision board. And he's going to get me this beautiful blue BMX bike that I always wanted. And then he turns right. And I'm like, Home Depot? No! He took me to Home Depot on my birthday. I'm walking through the aisles of Home Depot. I'm in my pajamas. It's like 7.30 in the morning. Dad, do you even know what day it is today? He's like, yeah, it's Saturday. And I'm like, no, it's my birthday. Like, today's my birthday. It's September 23rd. Did you forget that it's my birthday? And he's like, no, Hassan, of course, of course I know it's your birthday. That's why I brought you here to Home Depot so you could pick out the door handle for the bathroom. And I'm like, why don't you have me pick out the toilet? Because you're all over my dreams. You know, the first, the first eight years of my life, it's pretty much, you know, me and my dad. And my mom, she's back in India uh, going to med school. She got married to my dad young, so she has to finish up the residency and rotation thing. Now my mom, conversely, she would come to the States and she would just kill the mom game. It was like being at Disneyland. We were a family. We were all together. She would bring physical gifts. She came to Pioneer Elementary School and brought me a Ghostbusters 1 proton pack. I'm talking about the backpack. I'm talking about the gun. I'm talking about the wheelie thing that catches ghosts. Kids were losing their minds. They're like, what? Hassan's a ghostbuster? I'm like, yes, I'm a ghostbuster. It was one of the happiest days of my life. She was really sweet, and she was really into what I was doing, and she wanted me to have fun. But then she'd have to go back to finish her studies in India. I'd be like, Dad, when is she coming back? When is she coming home? 
And my dad would be like, look, when her visa goes through, we, we'll, we'll be together. We'll be a family again. And I remember the day she came home. It was August 11th, 1993. I'm eight years old. I was so excited. I run into my room and I put on my Ghostbusters proton pack and I'm standing there in the living room. And my dad takes one look at me and he's like, Hassan, put on Indian clothes. And I'm like, all right, I'll be an Indian Ghostbuster. That's fine. I'm like wearing like shavar kameez. I'm <laughs> this like backpack on. And I'm waiting in the living room. The door opens. And my mom walks in. My dad walks in. And then immediately behind my parents is this little brown girl with a mushroom cut. And she just runs over to me. And she's like, Hassan, bye! And she hugs me. And I'm in full hover hands mode because I have no idea who this person is. Basically what happened was my dad would go back and forth to India to visit my mom. And then during one of his trips, he knocked her up. And I had a sister. But no one told me about her. My immediate reaction is like, who is this person? I was supposed to have mobbed myself. I didn't get that. Was, we were supposed to be a family, the three of us. I didn't get I had a sister. No one told me about her. So my mom took this photo of us. And this is the first photo of me and Aisha together like brother and sister. Aisha is wearing this like blue jumpsuit. I'm in a wi- all white shalvar kameez. So I'm like white kurta, white pajama bottoms. And I'm like, I'm hugging her. Her arms are squeezed tight around me and she's looking at the camera like smiling. She's like, aha, America. And then I'm like hugging her like, I guess this is the way people in movies are supposed to hug. And then the, the thing that was the worst was they, they were just like, now go take care of her. And my dad's like, Hassan, why aren't you happy? And I'm like, I'm ha- why am I not happy? Because you brought this girl out like Maury for immigrants. Like you were just like, Hassan, you are the brother. And she just comes out and she's dancing just like, where's my bunk bed? I'm like, who are you? She's like, you don't know me. You don't. Yeah, I have no idea who you are. Get out of my room. I didn't sign up for this. You guys did. And my dad's like, Hassan, we're a family. We're all that we have. And We're a family. We're all that we have. He just kept saying that. And I'm like, no, that's on you and mom. I mean, I already had this feeling at school where I wasn't even getting by. Hassan by, hassan by, hassan by. Kids are like, what's hassan by? It's like, how do I explain to Cody? Oh, it's a term of endearment in my culture. It means hassan brother. And as a kid, all you want to do is fit in. That's all I wanted to do more than anything in the world. And having my sister follow me around on the playground, I'm playing kickball, wall ball, hassan by. I'm like, get lost. And eventually I just couldn't take it anymore. And so I try to ditch her and I run into the boys' bathroom. She follows me into the boys' bathroom, hustling by. And eventually I just turn and I snap. And I'm just like, hey, you're not, you're not my sister. My sister. And she couldn't understand English. But she could get what I was saying. You know, she started crying and all these like tears are going down her little chubby cheeks. And she runs out of the bathroom. And I look at her and I'm like, oh man. She's going to tell dad. And I'm going to get it. But she didn't tell dad. My dad, he had told my mom all these big promises when they had originally gotten married. I'm going to take you to America. We got this. It's going to be like this and that. And, and, And all those things didn't exactly go over the way he had planned. He really wanted to make make it up to Aisha in a really big way. And so for her fifth birthday, 
my sister's very first birthday in the United States, he wanted to make it super special. So he brings everybody in the living room and he drags in this big brown box and he hands Aisha a pair of scissors. He's like, Aisha, come over here. Open the box. She cuts open the box and opens the flaps. And on the right flap, I see Toys R Us. My dad reaches in and pulls out this beautiful blue BMX bike. And I'm staring at this bike, the exact bike that was on the Toys R Us kids catalog cutout in my room. My dad, when he presented the bike to my sister, and he didn't even look over or wink or like smile at me or give me this sort of thing where like, Hassan, maybe one day you'll understand. Nope. He just looked at Aisha and was like, here you go, Aisha. She's looking up at me and she's, she stares at me and she can see, she can just tell how mad I am. And she's like, Hassan, by Lona, lo. You know, why don't you take it out for the first ride? And I'll be honest, you know, as an older brother, I felt very entitled to that first ride. She opens the door and she's like, look, Hassan, by just take it for one lap around the cul-de-sac. And I grab those rubber handlebars and I'm just like, that boom and I take off and I'm flying she's like and I'm like eat my dust and I am moving on this bike I am switching through all 17 speeds it is 21.1 pounds as advertised and I am flying she's like come back and I see this curb and I'm about to pop a wheelie on this curb I'm like yeah I'm gonna fly on this BMX bike and I hit that curb bam and the bike goes left and I go right and that beautiful blue BMX bike boom crashes into the sidewalk and all of that fresh blue paint just chips off the side of the bike it hadn't even been 20 minutes. And then I can hear the pitter-patter of Aisha's chuppels. She's running over and she's just crying. And she's standing there in her sandals and sweatpants. She's like, Hassan Bai, why did you do that? Why did you do that? I gave you the first ride. I didn't even say, I didn't say I'm sorry. I just remember I fell off the bike and I looked at it and I knew, I knew when I saw that paint off the side. I was like, this is messed up. I didn't even say it. I couldn't, I could, I, I, was, I was speechless. I just remember going to her room the following day and being like, Aisha, listen, I'm really, really sorry. And because kids are so honest, she couldn't even lie to me and say it's okay. Because it wasn't. That was the first time where she wasn't thrilled to like follow me around. She didn't follow me around. All of a sudden, this girl who was my shadow doesn't really want to hang out with me. After that moment, the mushroom cut started growing out and she got like hair down to her shoulders. We got older. We had separate rooms. She started learning English so she could speak to other kids at school and make friends. Because before, I kind of represented also like a mediator between Oligar and America. This is the playground. This is where you play tetherball. This is where we do this. That's the girls' bathroom. This is the boys' bathroom. This is this. This is Sesame Street. This I would just, I could explain all these things to her. And I could see it the more and more she learned English and started having her own autonomy. And once she started to get her own autonomy, but that meant that she needed Hassan by less and less. Did you miss the shadow when you were losing it? Yeah, it sucked. I started to realize it, and I was like, man, like, yeah, I, I kind of miss that time in our life. Does she look up to you now? 
I don't know if she looks up to me. I know she calls me every once in a while for advice. And what's crazy is Aisha has always used it as emotional blackmail on me because that blue BMX bike is still in the garage to this day. We were going to what's called like a family dawah. The family dawah means like a family party. I'm late. Get in the camera, you close the doors, and she's like, oh my God, Hasanbai, you are so selfish. And I'm like, what are you talking like? And she's like, really? You're not selfish? She points to the corner of the garage. Garage door opens. And she'll she'll be like, hey, look, look at the side of the bike. Why is one side of the bike just completely missing paint? Oh yeah, because you crashed it, Hasanbai. You crashed it when I was a little kid. I mean, yeah, it's a joke now to us, but it's one of those things that she's always had to just remind me of how selfish I am, of like, like just from the earliest memories, you always screwed me over, Hasanbai. Remember. Big thanks to Simon Minaj for that story. Now, besides being a correspondent on The Daily Show, Hassan has a new one-man show on Netflix right now called Homecoming King. The original score for that piece comes from our own Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Lena Basitsis. It's about that time. But if you're not finished, if you want more stories that move you, inspire you, scare you, make you laugh, make you feel, make you feel, snappers, there's plenty more where this came from. Get it delivered weekly on the device of your choice, the amazing Snap Judgment podcast at snapjudgment.org. Join the Snap Nation conversation on Twitter, on Facebook. Snap Judgment Live is going on tour. The world's top storytellers backed by the sexy sounds of Bell's Atlas. Tampa, Miami, Boston, Philly, Kansas City, Salt Lake City, San Diego, before returning home to Oakland. Get your tickets right now at snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by a team that has spent way too much time behind bars. Please pay a fine for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Patton C.D. Miller likes jail food and a Sussman likes uniforms. Davey, not the Taliban, Kim, Nancy, the Taser Lopez, our enforcer, Joe Rosenberg, Renzo, the weightlifting Gorio, our nighttime crew, Eliza Smith, Honor Adlerstein, Matt Ducat, and Leon Morimoto. Jasmine Aguilera carries her own toilet paper. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could get locked up for a dog ticket, miraculously find bail money, and when you go to the hearing on Monday and the judge dismisses your case, you could say, not so fast, your honor. Not so fast. I will need my $100 back before we start dismissing stuff up in here. And even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.